You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles now to Colossians chapter 3. We do print the, the passage that we're preaching from in your bulletin. You can follow along there if you don't have a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible at all, let us help you with that. We've got ones out on the table, and they're real nice, too. And you can take one home. That's, that's our gift to you. Take that with you when you leave. question I want to uh, ask this morning that I want all of us to, to ask ourselves is, how should Christians view the world and their relationship to it? I think we need to have a solid answer for that question, and it, we, we trip up on that. We struggle with that sometimes, certainly in this day and age, but it's, it, that's always been the case. Christians have always struggled with that. We know we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. How do we do that? What's, what's, what's that even mean? What's that look like? Paul tells us a little bit about what that looks like in Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the first 17 verses this morning, so please read with me. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And God, as I stand here, a broken and frail man, I pray that you would move me out of the way, that you would be pleased to use your servant to speak to your people, and that God, you would prevent my lips from error, that if there's anything I say this morning that is not of you, it would be forgotten before people leave here this morning, 
But Lord, that the things you would have them know, the things that you want them to learn, the way, Holy Spirit, that you are speaking in people's lives individually, that it would stick and stick good for your glory alone. And I ask God in Jesus' name, amen. I think we get this idea sometimes that the world is bad and heaven is good, so what we're really looking forward to is just getting out of here. And what, that, what flows from that is this reluctance to invest anything meaningful into this life or into this world. We think it doesn't really matter in the end, but it matters to God. God is doing something in the world through his church, and we're a part of that. It's not just about our personal holiness, but what God intends to do publicly with our personal holiness. Where do we get that idea? Well, lots of places, all in the Old and New Testament, but Jesus, specifically in Matthew 24, he says, in this gospel, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Life in the kingdom of God is a blessing to us as individual citizens of it and everyone else in proximity to it. In Rome, there were people who lived in Rome who were not citizens of Rome. They had the blessings of living in Rome, but they didn't possess all of the, the rights as citizens. They were under the umbrella. They were under sort of the relative peace that the Pax Romana brought, the peace of Rome. But they didn't have the, the rights as citizens. As Christians, we have residents and rights as citizens. But we also have responsibilities as citizens. We have responsibilities to our king, Jesus. We have responsibilities to our fellow citizens. And we have responsibilities to our fellow residents who are not yet citizens or may even be resisting citizenship. That was part of the problem the church at Colossae faced. If you remember several weeks ago when we were in earlier parts of Paul's letter, there were false teachers during this time, and they're prescribing a sort of super-spiritualism that was taking the people's minds off their duties to God and to one another and to outsiders. When Paul says, set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, in verse 1, he's not saying, forget about this place, it doesn't matter. He's saying, no, it matters. You can tell it matters because you've got all these problems going on between you that you can't fix yourselves. Only Jesus can. Focus on Christ and what he's doing in this world, and you'll begin to understand your place in it better. And it will begin to make sense to you. Paul preached the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, as did Jesus. And his letters are mostly about how to live in the kingdom. And it's a testimony to the nations that Christ is king. Not one day, now. Earlier in the same letter, Paul says that all things were created by Jesus and he is reconciling to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, and making peace by the blood of his cross. Chapter 1, verse 19. Paul reminds the Colossians God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so that should be evident not only to us, but to everyone around us. 
So again, a lot of Paul's letters, including this one, instruct believers on how to live in Christ's kingdom so the glory of Christ's kingdom can be displayed. Paul's always really good about keeping people from falling off both sides of the horse in all of his arguments. You know, you read his letters and he's always like, not this, that, right? And don't think this. He's always trying to kind of get out in front of some of the objections and things like that. He does a very good job of that because it's the Holy Spirit, right, that's behind all of that. But Paul's, you know, he, he's always doing this. He's, don't, don't, don't live as though there's no tomorrow, but don't live only for tomorrow, don't, don't sin your face off because you know you're already forgiven in Christ. And don't try to earn your salvation either because you know you're already forgiven in Christ. Right? Don't love what the world has to offer, but don't abandon the world either. Love the world the way God loves the world, so much so that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Being in the world but not of it doesn't mean don't play the game. It means know what team you're on and play. The game's going on whether you realize it or not or whether you like it or not. So the question is, which team are you on? Which team are you on, and are you a team player? Are you following the coach's strategy for winning the game? Paul gives us instructions in Colossians 3 for Christian living, so here's the main idea. I did not intend to make that a long, dramatic pause. I just needed a sip. Here's the main idea this morning. Christian living, being dead to sin and raised to life in Christ, is a shift in values that honors God and benefits man. Simple enough. Christian living, what, what Paul's describing as being dead to sin and alive in Christ, is a shift in values that honors God and benefits man. We're not trading earth for heaven. We're trading fallen earthly values for redeemed earthly values. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we want. That's, that's, what, that's what Jesus commands us to pray. So we're supposed to pray for that because that's what he intends. So being in the world but not of it means a shift in values in the lives of believers that permeates through generations and makes the earth more like it ought to be. That's powerful. We're kind of quick to abandon the notion, though, that God has any real interest in the physical. We're tempted to think physical bad, spiritual good, right? We have to be careful with that, though. That was a temptation in the early church, and it's why Paul writes this letter to the Colossians. They're so caught up with this idea of the spiritual that they're leaving their earthly duties to God on the earth behind, not to mention their earthly duties to one another. We don't honor God by despising man. We don't honor God by despising his creation. Being more like Christ isn't loving heaven so much that we hate earth and everything in it. So this shift in values isn't like the monkey bars where you, you, know, you kind of let go of one to grab onto the other so that you can keep moving closer and closer toward heaven. No, you let go with both hands. 
die to self. And then both hands are free to kind of pick up a set of binoculars that allow you to be able to see yourself and other people and the world that God has made with a new perspective, with new eyes, and with a new purpose. That's dying to self. That's what living in the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like dying to yourself in sin and being raised with Christ in new life. It's a shift in values, putting off the values and habits of the world and putting on the values and habits of Christ. And that, ladies and gentlemen, has an intended impact on the world that Christ is redeeming, not condemning. How do we know that? Well, Matt preached a few weeks ago, didn't he, on John 3.16? We all know that one, right? You know what the very next verse says? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christian living is a shift in values that honors God and benefits man, not just you and, and, your, and your salvation, but there's, it's all of us, isn't it? Now, I know, uh, you know, a couple points for you this morning under this heading, the shift in values that honors God and benefits man. One, if you want to know what to do in this life, if you want to know where your place is in the world, what God expects of us, pay attention to what Jesus is doing. Focus on Jesus and his solution. The second point is realize Jesus' solution is you. I know that sounds kind of funny, right? Jesus' solution is you. Let me, let me qualify that. Jesus is the solution. Full stop. But y'all, if you own a business and you hire someone to come work for your company, do you intend to use them or not? You know, it seems strange that you would, you would hire someone into your organization without any intention of them contributing anything to your organization. It seems strange that Christ would choose to work through us, his church, his people, with no expectation of our participation anywhere. Is that fair? So we're not saying Jesus is relying on man for his redemptive purposes. We are saying he hasn't enlisted us into his service to carry out his plans for redemption. Just want to make sure we, we don't get that twisted, okay? You don't contribute anything to your salvation, but your life should contribute something to the kingdom of God. It's not enough that it's not a hindrance, that your life's not a hindrance. It's supposed to make a difference. It's not enough to put off the things of the world. We have to put on the things of Jesus because it's part of his plan for the world he is redeeming. Part of the Colossians problem, the reason they're tempted to fall for this false teaching that they're getting and that Paul's defending against, is that they have a wrong view of the world and their relationship to it. That's fundamentally the issue. Because they're focusing on earthly solutions and not on heavenly realities. That's why he says, set your eyes on the things above, not on the things below. Paul says, pay attention to what Christ has done and who he's made you. And stop trying to be so super spiritual that you miss the forest for the trees. Paul says you hit what you aim at. Aim at Jesus. And when you do, you begin to take his perspective and live out his values in the world. So that people will see him. 
Paul says, keep your focus on Jesus. You're not going to get to glory some other way. Your circumstances in life aren't going to improve some other way. You're not going to become more holy some other way. Remember, these are people that are being prescribed a form of religion that's all mysterious. You know, it's super mysterious, and you have to have these visions from angels, and you have to have help from the angels, and you've got to physically beat the sin off of yourself because the flesh is bad. See how we can misunderstand that? Paul says, no, that's, that's not it. That's not how you do it. Stop it. You know, he just got done telling them that in chapter 2. Here, he states the positive case. So it's like, no, no, don't do that. Now do this, okay? Here in chapter 3, he gets more practical. He says, focus on the right thing. You want to know what life is about? Recognize that your life is in Christ. It's no longer you who lives, but Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have died, Paul says in verse 3. You have been reborn, born not of the flesh, but of the spirit. And the needs of heaven-born creatures cannot be cured by earthly remedies. And heavenly realities cannot be understood by earthly means. What you need is Christ, and what you want is to look more like him. Focus on Jesus and his solutions. Put away yourself, put away your earthly solutions. And then Paul goes on to say how you do that, by putting off the old and putting on the new. You can't, you can't do it any other way. You know you're a sinner and God's angry with sin. Good start. It's good. You know that you're forgiven by the blood of Christ, and yet you still sin. That's good. That's good tension there. Hold on to that. What do we do? How, how does that work? They have people teaching them to beat it out of them or to get on the angel's good side so they're protected. No, apart from Christ, Paul's trying to explain, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, there's no power in all the universe that can handle your sin. That's how bad it is. You can't handle that. So stop looking for it down here. Only Christ can supply that power. And he has. That's what he wants them to latch on to. Done. And here's what's fun. If he has supplied the power to overcome sin's grip on you and, to, and, and the world, then why? Just for you? No, for him. For his glory. And for the benefit of man. That's why we have the whole law, right? Didn't Jesus say the whole law was about love God, love neighbor? If he fulfilled the whole law, and he has, and if he enables us by his Holy Spirit to obey it, and he has, then what's the point? We know it's not so we can earn our salvation or keep our salvation. So what's the point? It's so that the earth would be filled with his glory. That's the point. God told Abraham in Genesis 12 that we read earlier that people who were not his people would be blessed by him and his descendants. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Is God pulling Abraham's leg? Or was there something to that? Was the promised Messiah coming into the world going to have some 
effect on the world at large, or did he only come to save his elect? Now, he did come to save only his elect. He didn't come to save anyone else. But is that the only reason he came? Wasn't there some stuff Adam was supposed to do that God commanded him that he didn't do? You know, like have dominion and stuff? We remember that? Let me give you some possible choices here, something to help us think about this. Jesus' great commission was to go and make disciples of the nations, right? And he says this on the heels of his declaration that all authority in heaven and on earth had already been given to him. Okay? There we have it. So let's look at some options. Either Jesus, ruling over heaven and earth, doesn't care whether or not the nations are Christian. He's indifferent. It doesn't really matter. He doesn't want the nations to be Christian. He's opposed to the idea. Or he wants and expects the nations to be Christian. I don't think it's unreasonable to go with option C there. So next question, if that's what he wants and that's what he expects, does he, does he intend to get it? If you read the Psalms and the prophets, the answer is a resounding yes. So how does he get it? That's point number two. The first was focus on Jesus and his solution to understand your place in the world, how to, have, how to be able to view it rightly. The second is realize Jesus' solution is you, the church. Christ's church is a gift to the world. Jesus was God's gift to the world. And the church is the body of Christ. Christ's presence in the earth. It's the beacon of light shining in a dark place. It's the signal in the sky that reminds everyone of their creator and points them to their redeemer. We know Jesus established his church and commissioned his disciples to grow it. And all throughout the Bible, from Genesis to genuine leather, we see a plan of redemption, reconciliation, renewal, and restoration. And since Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father, that redemption, restoration, renewal, and reconciliation comes through his church. Christ, through his church, transforms the world. The church doesn't make the world look like the church. That's, that's a fool's errand. That's not how it works. But it does, and it should, make the world look more like God wants for it to be. That's what salt and light does. Salt was primarily used as a preservative to keep things from rotting. That's the kind of salt you are. Light makes the way clear. It chases away the shadows. It keeps our eyes from playing tricks on us and not being able to see things rightly. It helps us to see clearly what is right and good and beautiful and true. That's the kind of light you are. That's how powerful the body of Christ, the church, is. And when I say the church, obviously, I'm not, talking, I'm not talking about King's Church. I'm not talking about First Pres downtown. I'm not talking about First Baptist or any place else. I'm talking about 
organic church, you, Christians, the body of Christ, right? Churches like, like this one that we're in and a part of that has a name and a logo, right? And, and people that work in it, it's, it, it's the church's job in that sense to, to preach the word, to administer the sacraments, prayer, and to equip the saints for service. And that ha- looks a lot like what y'all have to do Monday through Saturday, doesn't it? And y'all listen, that has an effect on the world. And it's an effect that Jesus makes very clear he desires. Here's the thing, life in Christ means death to sin, right? And death to sin means freedom for us and ability. What do we do with our freedom and ability? Are these trophies we spit, shine, and put on a shelf somewhere so we can admire them? Or these things that we have been given to us for his purposes in the world? Good deeds naturally flow from death to sin and life in Christ, and we know those good deeds don't hold our place in line to heaven. So what are our good deeds good for? They display for others the glory of Christ in his kingdom. When a person gains an interest in eternity, it should renew their interest in the world and humanity. It's a total shift in perspective. Focusing on heavenly things should quicken the soul of the believer towards his fellow man and the world around him. Not deaden it like it did in Colossae. Have you ever heard someone say, or someone being described as being so heavenly-minded they're of no earthly good. You heard that before? I don't know who first said it. I know Johnny Cash put it in a song. But that's a fair critique of a lot of Christians, I think. So heavenly-minded they're of no earthly good. It's always been the case. I think it's certainly the case in our day today. That's why God's people are voluntarily impotent in our nation today. There's C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity kind of touches on something I want us to think about as we think about, you know, love, love for heavenly things and earthly things and where that balance is, be in the world but not of it. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world were the very same ones who thought most of the next. That's how it should be. It's not an either or. It's not that in order to love God, you have to hate the world. But you say, the Bible says whoever is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. That's true. It does. It says that. And in 1 John, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in it. It says that too. It also says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What's it mean to be in the world but not of it? When we're, when we're commanded to not love the world in Scripture, we're being commanded to not be tangled up in all of its enticements and governed by its values. We're supposed to be tangled up in Jesus and governed under his values. That's what's in view. You know, consider Lot's wife. You remember when they had to flee Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels come, they say, you got to get out of here, right? Right now. Like, don't even take anything with you. Just get up and run. Don't look back. Don't stop in the valley. Don't pass go. Do not collect $200. Just get out. And Lot's wife looked back, and God struck her down. 
Lot's wife loved Sodom and Gomorrah. It had her heart, its comforts and pleasures and ways of life. Christ didn't dwell in her heart richly. The world did. She loved everything in it, everything that it had to offer, and she lamented its destruction. Abraham loved Sodom and Gomorrah too, though, didn't he? He pleads with God for the people there because he had love of God. He had his mind set on things above and not on the things below. He had a love of God and love of neighbor. That shift in values motivated him to have compassion, true, genuine compassion for the things down here. That's the kind of love of the world it's appropriate for us to have as Christians. Not a love of all the stuff of the world, but a true and genuine desire for its redemption, its reconciliation, its renewal and restoration. An excitement about Jesus reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christmas time's around the corner. Some of y'all are like, like I used to be up until 72 hours ago. About 72 hours ago, I changed my mind. I decided I'm not going to be a one-at-a-time kind of guy anymore. Like, I used to feel like, well, you just, just let these things come in stride, right? And, and I know Catherine's over here going, she's shaking her head because she, <laughs> she's, she's on the team I just came from. But... You know, it's like, let's just, let's get through the holidays one at a time. I was very much like, don't start setting up Christmas decoration stuff until after Thanksgiving. I'm over it now, right? I'm over it. We've got five little boys and one on the way in February, and the time just goes by so fast, and it's too much fun, right? So we're doing it now. I, I, we're going to start doing it yesterday. We didn't get around to it. Sometime this week, we'll get it going. My wife is thrilled. She's like, yes, praise the Lord. He's come around. But regardless, y'all, one of my favorite Christmas hymns is Joy to the World. I sing it all year round. We can sing Christmas songs whenever we want because they're about Jesus and they're true all of the time. But that's like, that's like my favorite one. Who, who's with me? Who's like really into Joy to the World? Yes. Y'all think about the lyrics, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. My man Isaac Watts gets it, right? There's something about that. It's an understanding of those heavenly realities, realizing that we're living in a world where all of that is true, that helps us understand the world that we're living in and that Christ is redeeming. It's a change in perspective. It's a shift in values. Those heavenly realities, focusing on those, keep us from asking for man's permission to practice our religion in private and in peace, and instead motivate us to proclaim the truth of our king without whom there is no peace. 
There's examples of this kind of thing throughout history. Christians being so heavenly minded, they were of earthly good. Their focus on things above gave them a right perspective of the things below, and God blessed it tremendously. And his redemptive plans include us, right, as the people in his church. Here's one, one that I think of a lot, and I think I actually mentioned this with one of you the other week, <clears throat> just in conversation. In the early church in Rome, okay, during this time, well, I'll put it to you this way. There's always been abortion, there's never not been abortion in the world. It's just now you can make an appointment. Now it's done in this safe sanitary room with fancy instruments and white coats and prescriptions. The way you used to kill babies you didn't want in Rome in the first century was just to throw them outside of the city gates and let them starve or let the animals get after them. And Christian women in the early church, would go outside at night in the dark, go outside the city gates and hear those babies screaming and bring them in and adopt them into their families and bring them up in the church and disciple them. And the church grew like wildfire. It almost reminds you, it's reminiscent of the Hebrews in Egypt when they're multiplying like crazy and Pharaoh says, kill all the male children. And they just kept growing. Right? Another example, John Newton. You're like, who's that guy? You know him. He wrote Amazing Grace. You know the hymn? Before his conversion, before he wrote those words, he was a slave trader. He was a cruel and wicked, brutal man. But that change in him pinned those words that we sing so easily and many of us have memorized. And even after that, he joined with William Wilberforce and abolished the slave trade in England. It wasn't enough that he stopped participating in the slave trade. He recognized that it was an offense to a holy and righteous God. He, he didn't just put off the old, he put on the new, and it changed the world. Being in the world but not of it means making the presence of Christ and his kingdom apparent in the world. When we talk about being in the world but not of it, we're not talking about withdrawing from the world. We're not called to be hermits or societies of people that live on these little compounds away from the nasty, filthy, evil earth. That's not what we're called to do. We're supposed to be taking ground through the proclamation of the gospel of Christ and his kingdom. And we can't do that hiding out and keeping our heads down and merely trying to preserve our way of life. Our way of life, if it is genuinely life in Christ, is for every man, woman, and child made in the image of God, and that is literally everybody. And y'all, listen, if this isn't true, okay, not only are we wasting our time this morning, nobody should believe it. If it is true, everyone should believe it. Amen? Our call to set our minds on the things above and not on the things of earth is not a call to separate ourselves from the world, but to separate ourselves from its values. Not only are we not governed by the world's values, we proclaim the truth of God's values. We remind people Christ is king, not you. There's a way you can say that. You don't have to be a jerk. You really don't. But you got to say it. 
Christ is king, not you. Right? This is his world that you're living in. And you are breaking his rules. There's no one who's not under the authority of Christ. There are no limits to Christ's jurisdiction. If that were true, y'all, nobody could be guilty of breaking his law. Who could he send to hell? His jurisdiction reaches everywhere. And we show them with love, with patience. We show them the kingdom of God, the kingdom we are a part of that broke into creation at the incarnation of Christ and that was inaugurated at the cross and claimed its victory at his resurrection has a different set of values, and we live by those. What are those? We get a look in verses 5 through 17. This is how you make manifest the kingdom of God on the earth, how you're a part of Jesus' solution as his church. Read verses 5 through 10 with me real quick. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul starts off the bat there listing five vices in verse 5. And they all have to do with lust. The first four have to do with sexual lust. And the fifth is covetousness, a lust for stuff. Paul says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And here's the humbler, what was true of them and what's true of us, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. You were once deserving of the wrath of God for these things. He's trying to tell them, don't, don't just try to restrain them. Remember, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to figure out a way how to solve their earthly problems through earthly means, yes? And it's not working. The, the asceticism, the beating themselves, it's not working. He says, don't try to restrain them. Don't try to keep them on a short leash. leash. Hand them over. He's trying to bring these heaven, heavenly realities down so that they understand themselves and the world they're living in. He says, you are dead to them. That's what's actually the case. You are dead to them, and those things are dead to you, and when you do fall into temptation with these things, they should feel like death to you. And if that happens, y'all, that's the Holy Spirit working in your heart. A lot of you know exactly what that feels like. That's that shift in values working itself out in your desires. You get to start seeing sin for what it really is. It seems sweet at first, but then you get that bitter aftertaste, right? Praise God that sin leaves a bad taste in our mouths. It didn't used to. It didn't used to. Now we have guilt over our sin and we confess it to God and we know that we have forgiveness through the blood of Christ. Paul says, this is how you were before you were transferred out of darkness into the kingdom of God. You were deserving of God's wrath. Because he's not just king and judge over here, he was king and judge over there where you were, and you were found guilty, and you needed forgiveness, and now you have it. You're dead to sin and alive in Christ now. You were bought with a price and adopted into the family of God, and this family, citizens of this kingdom, have a different set of values, a different set of rules than the world. It's not like the world's kingdoms that lie and cheat and steal and murder. So put off the old self and put on the new. 
Paul's reiterating this dead to sin, alive in Christ thing throughout this entire passage. It's the whole point that he's trying to get across. You died to this world's values, and you have been raised with Christ to live out his kingdom's values for the glory of God and for the benefit of man. This happening in your life, this transformation, this shift of values, is the means by which he is blessing all the families of the earth as he promised Abraham in Genesis 12. Filling the earth with image bearers of his son. Y'all listen to me. Christian, I'm going to look at somebody whose name I don't know. Christian, you are the descendants that Abraham saw in the sky when God told him to count the stars and he couldn't do it. And there will be so many more. Putting off the old and putting on the new is taking on the image of Christ. We are made more and more like him in heart and in conduct by the power of of the Holy Spirit. So we put off the, the old earthly Adam stuff and we put on the holy Jesus stuff. All right, read with me again verses 12 through 17. Verse 12, put on then. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what living in the kingdom looks like. How are Christians? We asked this question in the beginning. How are Christians supposed to view the world and their relationship to it? They're supposed to want it to look like that. Who wouldn't want to live there? But how will they know they want it if they've never seen it before? That's where you come in. That's what I mean when I say Jesus' solution is you, his church. That's what the law of God in the hearts of men looks like looks radically different than the world, and it's beautiful, and it's impossible without Christ. Don't stop at it's impossible. No, it's not. It's impossible without Christ, and you've got him. Don't, don't bail out because it seems too good to be true or it seems too hard. Don't be so heavenly-minded you're of no earthly good. Put on Christ. This new identity we have in Christ isn't something we gain by our own power, obviously. It only happens as we grow in Christ and learn from him. But Paul's telling us to do something. He's telling us to put off and put on. How do we do that? I've already kind of thrown it out there already. I've already told you the answer. We grow in Christ. Like There's just no no shortcuts. You know, we, we read the word. We pray. We we talk about it together. We, 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 we tell other people about it. We get together like this and we worship him. You know, we, we lead our families and we model Christ for our children. Men, listen, you're going to fail. 
I know it feels like a, a giant weight on your shoulders, it is. And you're going to fail. I encourage you, that doesn't mean you don't try. Let your children see you try and fail, try and fail, try and fail. Let them see it's so important to you that you will suffer the embarrassment. Because what will happen is when they're grown, they'll forget about all your failures that seemed so important to you and so embarrassing, and they'll be left focusing on the one you were trying to imitate, and they'll want to imitate him better than you did. Praise God. That's glorious. That's how this stuff works. Y'all, it's these little seeds, man. It's these little seeds. It's like a little bit of leaven in a lump of dough that seems so insignificant at first. But it, it grows into something beautiful and glorious for the glory of God and the benefit of man. This is what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. See, the people in Colossae that Paul's writing to, they're so selfish. They want it all right here and right now for themselves. Their minds are fixed on earthly things, which is ironic because they're trying to live this higher life and this super spirituality, but it's bankrupt. They're competing against one another for who's the most righteous. They're competing for who knows the most, who has the secret, who has the inside track, right? And they're they're hung up on like what family you're from and what side of the tracks you live on and what country club you belong to. That's why there's that language there, the Scythian slave free stuff in verse 11. Paul says there's no distinction in the kingdom of God. That's not kingdom stuff, that's worldly stuff. This is what it looks like, verses 12 through 15. He lists those things, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, and harmony. That's what it looks like when people who have died to self and been raised to life in Christ, let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts, like Paul says in verse 15. See, it's not enough to, to put off, you have to put on. It's not enough to do no harm to your neighbor. You have to actually love your neighbor. How do we pull that off? You have compassion, Paul says. You know, listen, I can tell you, somebody within within your reach, or at least within a few steps of you right now, is hurt and broken and thinks no one cares. Care. Not because there's something in it for you. Just care. Don't make them ask. Desire to know. Have compassion. Be kind. Find ways to do good for others, even perhaps especially even, for those you don't think deserve it. Practice humility, and believe me, it takes practice. Humility is like a, a stiff pair of leather boots. You know, they take a long time to break in and feel comfortable wearing. And even then, they're still really hard to get on when you need them. Be meek. Meek's a word we don't understand. It's not weak. They rhyme, but they're not synonymous. You know, modern definitions even get this wrong. They think being meek is being easily imposed on or being submissive. It's not. It's not insisting on your own way. Because that's what, that's what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Right? 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful when it goes unnoticed or is unappreciated. Love doesn't get upset when it doesn't get a thank you card. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's meekness. Meekness is not being easily provoked. It's not cracking under pressure. It's gentle, but it's not weak. It's tough. It's a toughness. And practice patience. Patience in the sense that you are long-suffering. Not patience in the sense that you're waiting for something, okay? We get that messed up a lot. When we, when we hear God talking about patience, what's in view there is this, this long-suffering. That's how you deal with each other. <laughs> Listen, God, believe it or not, God is not on your timeline for your wife or husband's, your children's, or your neighbor's sanctification. He does not expect them to grow at the rate that you have determined. Right? Have patience with them. Live with each other in an understanding way. Understanding that people are frail and messed up, and so are you. Paul gives us more instructions about how we live as though we have been raised with Christ in new life in, in this kingdom in verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever dwells in you richly motivates you. Whatever occupies your mind and takes up space in your heart that's what directs you. Whatever you think about and however you feel comes out in what you say and in what you do. Jesus said that, right? Out of an abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What dwells in you richly? What are you motivated by? What occupies your mind? What do you think about? Is sinful things? Plotting and scheming against your neighbor? Lustful thoughts, maybe? Coveting things, stuff that you just got to have and you're not going to be content until you get it? Or heavenly things? What's going on in your heart? What are you meditating on? How are you feeling? Are you angry all the time? Bitter? Resentful? Or are you overwhelmed with gratitude that though you never did anything to deserve it, you are loved by your Father in heaven who never makes mistakes even though you do and who will never let you go. That's how you can do everything in the name of Jesus giving thanks to the Father through him. When you're thinking about who Jesus is and what he did and when you live out of a sense of gratitude for that, it completely transforms your desires, your outlook, your attitude, and how you treat other people. Or it should. That's what Paul's saying. You see how all this is coming together? This is what life in the kingdom should look like, and it's possible because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Because of the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, his presence is with us. And when our hearts are too full with gladness and thanksgiving over the realization of that fact, we sing. We're about to do that 
together in just a minute. What's one of your favorite songs to sing? You know, the one you sing when no one's listening. That you blast on the radio with the windows rolled down and you don't care how bad you sound. That one. Isn't there a feeling there? A memory of something, something you're thinking about, something that just sort of comes over you? Christ's redemptive work, if we really think about what all that means, should overwhelm us to the point where we sing at the top of our lungs and our soul just cries out. Gandhi, a dead religious leader, I say that because our religious leader is not dead, he's alive. He rose again from the dead, he conquered the grave, and he rules over heaven and earth today. But Gandhi, a dead religious leader, said, be the change you want to see in the world. Paul says, be like Christ who is changing the world. His desire for the world to change is stronger than yours. It's more personal to him. And he actually has the ability to do it. And he will accomplish it. That's the kingdom you're a part of, y'all. That's the team that you are on. When we put on Christ, we become so closely united to him and so much more like him that the world is forced to see him and not us. Let them see. And let them hear us sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. In Adam all die, but in Christ shall all be made alive. Rule over us and defend us. We know you do, but help us to see it. Change our wills and our desires. Help us to see the emptiness of the world's values and to see the beauty of yours. And give us the courage, Father, to show them to this world that you, your love for your glory, Lord, and for your benefit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.